from the Bible comes from 2 Samuel, chapter 24. It's on page 327 of the Pew Bibles. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he inclined David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men, so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over. And when the eyes of my Lord, the king, see it. But why does my Lord, the king, want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders. So they left the presence of the king to enrol the fighting men of Israel. After crossing the Jordan, they camped near Aoa, south of the town in a gorge and then went through Gad on to Jazza. They went to Gilead and the region of Tahim Hodish and on to Danjan and around towards Sidon. Then they went towards the fortress of Tyre and all the towns of the Hivites and the Canaanites and finally they went to Beersheba in the Negev of Judah. After they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Joab reported the number of fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. David was conscience-stricken after he had (coughs) counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come on you three years of famine in your land, or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you, or three days of plague in your land? Now then think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I'm in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, For his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from the morning until the end of the time designated. And 70,000 people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aranah, the Jebusite. When David saw that the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done 
let your hand fall on me and my family. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aranar the Jebusite. So David went up to the Lord, the Lord had commanded him, through Gad. When Aranar looked out and saw the king and the officials coming towards him, he bent down and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Aranar said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague of the people may be stopped. Aranar said to David, Let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are oxen for the bird offering, and here are the threshing sledges, the ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Aranar, gives... <coughs> gives all this to the king and I also said to him may the Lord your God accept you but the king replied to Aranar no I insist on paying for for it I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God bird offerings that cost me nothing so David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered, the, answered prayer on behalf of the land and the plague of Israel was stopped. Here ends our reading. Keep our 2 Samuel 24 open and let me lead us in prayer. Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Teach us now, we pray, that we might trust you wholeheartedly and walk in ways that please you. For we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I wonder, have you ever done something that you didn't think at the time was a big deal, uh, but it turned out to be a catastrophe? Um, If you have, I hope it's nothing near as bad uh, as this guy, uh, Sergio Martinez. Has anyone heard of Sergio? All right, so this guy, Sergio Martinez, in October 2003, he was uh, out on a hunting trip and uh, he got lost. And um, someone somewhere told him that when you get lost out in the woods in California, he was... um, he was told, you've you got to light up a signal fire. He, maybe he saw it on Bear Grylls, Man vs. Wild. Um, but, you know, it turns out that, this, that Sergio Martinez was no Bear Grylls. Uh, and actually the fire got out of control. And then this is what happened. So um, Sergio Martinez's signal fire spread and became the largest wildfire in California history. And it consumed around 300,000 acres Uh, in its trail of destruction. It destroyed around 2,400 homes. It caused an estimated $800 million uh, worth of damage uh, to property. And worst of all, as a result um, of this fire, around 15 people died. And uh, so it was an absolute tragedy. And uh, 
Sergio Martinez, he didn't think it was a big deal, just lighting up a little signal fire, but it turned out to be a total disaster. Uh, and in today's passage, we're going to um, talk about um, a guy, King David, who did something that he initially didn't think was a big deal, uh, but it turned out to have uh, major catastrophic consequences. Uh, and as we do so, we're going to be um, looking at why this chapter, it's kind of a strange chapter, uh, is such a fitting way to end the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. Uh, and 2 Samuel is a series, as Bruce said, that we've been working our way through over the last few weeks. Uh, So if you're taking notes, here are the headings. Uh, We're going to be looking at our passage under three headings. Uh, First, David sinned. Second, David's people suffered. And third, David's sacrifice brought salvation. David sinned, his people suffered, and then his sacrifice brought salvation. So let's look at each in turn. First of all, David sinned. Now, um, this is a very strange and confusing uh, passage, as I mentioned. There's a lot of confusing parts to it. Uh, And perhaps the first one we see is this. Why was David's census a sin? All right, you might have been asking yourself that. Uh, Have a look with me at the story. So, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 24, verse 2. So, David tells his general Joab to go through all the tribes of, uh, of Israel to count the fighting men and enroll them so that they would be ready uh, in the army to be called up as needed. And then verse 3, uh, we see Joab warns against it. Uh, nonetheless, verse 4, the king's word prevails. And so Joab and his commanders go through Israel counting the fighting men. It takes uh, Verse 8, it takes um, a long time, 9 months and 20 days. And then verse 9, it turns out that David's available army is huge. So 800,000 fighting men in Israel in the north and then 500,000 in the south in Judah, uh, 1.3 million in total. So far so good. But then what comes as a bit of a surprise is verse 10. David, it says, was conscience stricken after he'd counted the fighting men and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. So the question is, what was the sin of David's census? In Australia, of course, uh, we have a national census uh, every five years, and uh, it's conducted by the Australian Bureau of Statistics, and uh, you might think that's annoying, like just to fill out that out every few years, uh, but it's actually not a sin. Um, and also, um, God himself in the book of Numbers, like that's what the whole book of Numbers is all about. God commands Moses to number, uh, to, to conduct a census of the whole Israelite people. So obviously the census itself is not sinful. Why, why was it a sin then, according to, to God and to David? Well, the problem here is that the passage doesn't say, uh, but I actually think like much of our sin, it's not so much the action itself that is sinful. It's the motivation behind the action. So what we, what we deduce is that most likely David wanted to know the size of his army so that he could feel secure uh, against foreign invasion and so that he could feel strong so that perhaps he could invade other countries around him rather than trusting in the Lord. In other words, David was starting to, uh, to get proud and greedy like all the, the kings of the nations around him and God was not happy. Now, just compare this with uh, what David himself said earlier in Psalm 20. He said, now this I know, the Lord gives victory to his anointed. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord 
our God. Well done, David, in Psalm uh, 20, but not so good here. Uh, because Psalm 20 is what God expects from his people. But in 2 Samuel 24, therefore, we think that the sin was a matter of misplaced trust. David was starting to trust in himself, in his own numbers, as it were, rather than in the name of the Lord. Well, what about us? What do you trust in? Are we tempted like David to trust in our things rather than in the Lord? Now, I'm assuming uh, none of us are like David um, and have like 1.3 million strong army uh, at your disposal. Uh, If you do, let me know. Um, I would love to go annex New Zealand and make it part of the Australian Empire. Uh, Now, that's a joke. Actually, I'm allowed to make that joke because in addition to being an Australian citizen, I'm a Kiwi citizen as well. So I'm going to poke a little bit of fun at my uh, compatriots today. Uh, But my guess here is in Manly um, that uh, there are actually a lot of things uh, that we're tempted to trust in for our sense of security and strength and joy other than the Lord Maybe it's the size of our bank account that gives us our sense of security. Uh, maybe it's the, sense, uh, the size of our home or the size of our net worth that gives us our sense of strength. Or maybe we feel that we're somebody uh, because somebody loves us. And so we trust in our marital status or in the, in the size and the health, relational health of our family for our sense of happiness and joy. Now, of course... Um, These things are great things, aren't they? Um, There's nothing wrong with desiring these things or having these things. Uh, But the problem, of course, comes when we start to trust in these things uh, for our security, strength, and joy, rather than in the name of the Lord. And you know, one way to know that you're trusting in those things and not in the Lord is that they start to make you feel proud. Now, of course, I'm not talking about when, uh, you know, your child brings home from school, you know, a painting and you, you put it up on the fridge and it's lovely or, you know, not talking about, you know, proud that, that your children maybe score the winning goal in a soccer match. Uh, I'm talking about proud in the sense that you're trusting in those things to start to make you feel superior to others. You know, they start to make you think that you're better than others because you have and they have not. That's how you know you're trusting in things other than the Lord. Uh, Another way you know you're trusting in things and not in the Lord is that you loathe to give stuff away. I'm so encouraged to to see how much uh, we were giving to the winter appeal. Um, But if you are loathe to give stuff away, um, you know you're trusting in them. Um, Just just like the rich young ruler um, who was told by Jesus, go sell everything, give money to the poor, uh, and then come follow me. And the story says he went away very sad. Uh, because his whole sense of worth was wrapped up in his wealth. Now, even if you don't have these things, um, then it's still possible to trust in them and not in the Lord. Maybe you don't have lots of possessions, maybe you don't have good health, or maybe you don't have people in your life who love you. But you know you trust in those things when you start to say, if I just have that then I'll be secure. If I just have that, then I will have strength and joy. And once again, let let me repeat, it's not wrong to want these things, but it is wrong if you put your trust in them, like David put his trust in his army apart from the Lord. And that's because God wants us, his children, to trust in him and him alone. And that's because ultimately God alone 
is able to give us security and strength and joy. He is the only one that if you have him, you cannot lose him. And if you lose all else, you'll see that God is all you need. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. Some trust in their wealth and some trust in their health. And some trust in their marital status and some trust in the size of their family. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God, don't we? Now, just before we move on, here's another quick application. Uh, Look with me again at verse 3. You know, if you've got people in your life who are lovingly warning you not to sin, friends, please listen to them. They love you. Um, You know, just think of all the disaster they could spare you, that sort of the sense in which sin starts as a spark and can lead to a wildfire. Do yourself a favor and listen to those who are warning you against sin. And conversely, if you are a Christian and you see a Christian friend of yours about to do something stupid, do them a favor and say something, right? If you see something, say something. They probably won't like you for it, but think of all the disaster you might spare them if you lovingly tell them the truth. That's point number one. David sinned by trusting in himself, in his army, and not in the Lord. Point number two, David's people suffered for his sin. All right, heads up, this is tricky, this, this particular part. Now, the, confusing, the first confusing part was, why was the census a sin? The next confusing part is, why did David's people suffer for his sin? Look at verse 1. We get a sense of it here. It says, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. Again, refers back to 21, chapter 21, when there was another plague because of Israel's sin. But obviously here, Israel sinned and God wants to punish them. And that kind of helps solve the issue about why they're being punished. But then the confusing part is actually, verse 1 seems to imply that God Uh, The means by which God punishes his people is by inciting David to sin. Now, this this opens up a total can of worms, uh, but I think we're relieved a bit to see that in 1 Chronicles 21, which is the parallel passage of this story in the book of Chronicles, it says, actually, no, Satan incited God to sin. So if we read these two passages together, I think the clearer picture is that God permitted what Satan committed in uh, allowing, or rather in inciting David to sin. But in any case, uh, David understands that the people are being punished for his sin. And this is strongly uh, suggested by uh, the connection between verse 10, where David says, I have sinned, take away the guilt of your servant. And then verses 13 and 14, uh, the, the seer or the prophet Gad comes to him and gives him three choices of what punishment God will uh, mete out. And then verse 15, uh, 70,000 of the people die, as it seems, because of David's sin. And of course, this is what David himself thinks. Verse 17, uh, it says, I have sinned, he cries out to God. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. What have they done? So the way to this passage indicates uh, that David's people suffer because at least immediately because of David's sin. And I wonder, do you struggle with this? I think I do. You see, we're so used to Western individualism, it seems unjust that God would punish a whole bunch of people 
because of one person's sin. Do you think that? In fact, um, however, the more you read the Bible, the more you come to realize that it turns out that God is not a Western individualist. Uh, in fact, the Bible, in the Bible, God frequently uh, relates to people on the basis of the actions of just one person. Let me give you some examples. Uh, in Genesis 3, it says that Adam sinned, uh, and so God doesn't just punish him, but all people who, that's all of us uh, who are descendants of Adam, uh, share in the consequences of uh, the punishment for his sin, which includes death and suffering. But then in Genesis 6 to 9, it says that Noah was a righteous man, and God doesn't just save Noah, God saves all of Noah's family uh, and all the animals as well. Uh, In Joshua chapter 7, uh, the armies of Israel lose in battle because one man, Achan, had sinned against God. Uh, But then in 1 Samuel 17, the armies of Israel win in battle because of one man, uh, the shepherd boy David, uh, faithfully trusts in God and defeats Goliath. And so there are lots more examples. I'm more than happy to chat to you uh, more about this later, but I, I trust you get the idea. You see, again and again, God doesn't relate to his people merely as individuals, although he does, but he actually relates to us as people connected to one another, as an organic whole, like branches and leaves are connected to one another on a tree. Now, uh, I wonder if that tree prompts us to, to look over in this direction. If you uh, have never noticed, um, or if you're sitting at the back, right at the back, and you can't actually see, uh, there is a, a tree over here, an artwork that's really cool. Uh, you see the trunk and the branches uh, are made out of uh, the Bible uh, that's been sort of sewn together. Uh, and the leaves of the tree are made up of photos of, uh, of members, of, of people who belong here at St. Matt's the church family here. Uh, Now, like all good artwork, the tree communicates a lot of uh, messages. Uh, But for me, this tree especially reminds us uh, that we're all connected to one another uh, through the trunk, through, that is, our trust in Jesus when you come to believe the gospel. You see, Jesus is what binds us together, and he's the one uh, through whom God relates to us. And that's because God relates to us not as we are, uh, not just as we are as individuals, but as we are united under Jesus as are. And here's this is a big, big word, maybe, but as we are under Him as our representative head. Now, this, by the way, is uh, is why two uh, two Samuel twenty four is such a fitting conclusion to the books of one and two Samuel, because one and two Samuel, it turns out, are all about the unfolding revelation that God wants to relate to His people through His King that He has appointed as their representative head of the people. You see, in the book of uh, one and two Samuel, as the King goes. So goes the people. Uh, if the king is good, then, all, uh, then, then God will bless all the people. Uh, if the king is bad, then God will punish all the people as well. Now, uh, this idea of representative head might seem a little bit strange to some of us, but I want to suggest it's actually not as unfamiliar uh, as, you might think, as you might think. Let me give an example. Um, last Sunday... You might, have, you might have been very happy uh, with the result. Uh, State of Origin, the Blues finally won for only uh, the second time in the series uh, since 2006. And uh, for those of us who are fans, uh, we rightly said, we won! Now, 
To that, a skeptic uh, might say, wait a second, you didn't win. You weren't on the field. How, how dare you say we won? Uh, now, of course, that's ridiculous because um, it is totally legitimate uh, if you're a Blues fan to say we won or if you're a Queenslander, uh, you lost. Uh, sorry, had to get that in there. Um, why? Well, because the players on the field represent us, don't they? If they win, we win. If they lose, we lose. That's the idea of representative. Um, now, Likewise, um, it's the same that if our Prime Minister decides to go to war, let's say Malcolm R. Turnbull and his cabinet just, you know, for whatever reason decide they want to invade New Zealand, all right? Now, you might strongly object to that as an individual, but if you're an Australian citizen, it doesn't matter what you think at that moment because your representative head has declared war on another nation. You are now at war. All right, so that's the idea of representative head. And that's actually, as I said, how God relates to his people in the Bible. Um, now, this is made abundantly clear in Romans chapter 5. Um, according to Romans chapter 5, there are really only two types of people in the world, right? Two types. But I didn't choose that. Well, it doesn't matter, <laughs> says the Bible. Um, either your representative head is Adam or it's Jesus. And if your representative is Adam, then he is the trunk to which you're connected and you share in his disobedience and sin and death, right? However, if you trust in Jesus, then Jesus is your representative head and you share in his obedience and righteousness and life. And so coming back to 2 Samuel 24, the point is this, don't be too quick to accuse God of injustice for punishing his people because of David's sin. Because that's how God relates to his people on the basis of our representative head. And it's not only that, that's how God does it. It's, it's actually absolutely necessary for our salvation. Because just as Israel suffered for the sin of their representative head, so we too are saved because the righteousness of our representative head, King Jesus. Now, this, this idea is a little bit like this. It's what it means to be in Jesus or in Adam. Um, so in a, in a few weeks' time, I'm actually um, heading over to New Zealand to visit my side of the family over there. And God willing, I'll be getting on a plane in just a few weeks' time. Um, now, if I buy the wrong ticket uh, to a different destination and then I get on that plane, right, it doesn't matter how good I am on the plane, doesn't matter how hard I try, doesn't matter, for example, if I plead with the pilot, if I, if I get up and tell the air host or air hostesses, hey, I'm, I'm going to head down the aisle and serve chicken or fish or tea or coffee if you just turn the plane around and get me to the destination I want to get to. It doesn't matter how hard you might try. Um, if, the, if, you, if you're in that plane that's not heading to New Zealand, you will not end up in New Zealand. And friends, there are a lot of people, spiritually speaking, in that situation, they haven't accepted Jesus. And so by default, they remain in Adam as their representative head. And in that case, it doesn't matter how hard they try. It doesn't matter how much they give to charity. It doesn't matter how good they are. They will not get to their heavenly destination. Because they're still in Adam, they still share in his disobedience and death. 
But on the other hand, uh, if in a few weeks' time I do get on the plane that's heading to Auckland, uh, then mid-flight, it doesn't matter if there's turbulence, right? It doesn't matter uh, if I have doubts about whether or not the plane will get me there. Uh, it doesn't matter if I'm not the best passenger. You know, maybe I might snore like a trombone. You know, maybe uh, I might be one of those people who kind of kick the chair in front of you. You know, all those, you know, that what I'm talking about um, by accident, of course. Um, if the plane arrives in Auckland, then I too will arrive in Auckland. And it's the same with Jesus. If you trust in Jesus, he will get you to your heavenly home. It doesn't matter if there's turbulence and difficulties in your life. It doesn't matter even if you have doubts, as long as you remain in Jesus. It doesn't matter even if you're not always good, because none of us are sinless. You see, Jesus' place in heaven is secure. In fact, he's already there now. So if you trust in him, if you are in him, so your place in heaven is absolutely secure. So you can trust in him. And before we move on, uh, here's another quick application. Uh, If Jesus is your representative head, if you are connected to him like like branches are are connected to a trunk, uh, then actually that means, therefore, we're we're all connected to one another as that tree over there represents. So my question to you is this. How are you going living out your connection to one another? Are you invested in the lives of of your brothers and sisters gathered here? Do you love them? Do you spend your time with one another? Do you open up your home for one another? Do you encourage each other and pray for each other? And do you use your gifts to help one another grow to be more like Jesus? Or are you just here like a Western individualist, for a bit of a pick-me-up from the sermon or a bit of inspiration from the music. That's point number two. David's people suffered for David's sin, but Jesus' people receive life for Jesus' suffering and obedience. And so now that we're joined to him, we're joined to one another, even if you don't see that right now. Finally, point number three, David's sacrifice brought salvation. So far we've talked about uh, what was David's sin uh, and we talked about why David's people suffered for his sin. Um, Then the third confusing part of this passage is what's so significant uh, about the place where David offers the sacrifice? Have a look with me uh, at verse 16. It says, the angel of the Lord stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, but Then the Lord relented and said, enough. And the place where the angel halted was Aruna, sorry, the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. And then verse 18, God commands David to build an altar at that very place. Verse 24, he does that. He buys the land uh, and the oxen. And then verse 25, he builds an altar and offers sacrifices. And because of those sacrifices... God answers David's prayer in behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. 
And all that happens at this kind of unusual place, the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. Now, where was it? Um, we know from the nature of threshing floors were always up the hill because of the way in which um, it needed the wind to separate the chaff from the grain. Um, so historians believe that the threshing floor was up the hill from the old city walls uh, of Jerusalem. Now, that's where it is. Big deal. Why is it so significant? Well, let me, let me share with you some things that I thought were really cool when I discovered them. 2 Chronicles 3.1 says this. Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, uh, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. It was on the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite, hmm. the place provided by David. Now, if you think that's interesting, there's another really interesting little fun fact. Uh, Genesis 22, verse 2, where God is speaking to Abraham, he says, Take your son, Abraham, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Now, do you see why this spot is so significant? You see, in the past, in Genesis 22, this was the exact same place where Abraham's arm was stretched out to sacrifice his son Isaac and destroy his son. But then the angel of the Lord said, stop. And God himself provided a sacrifice as a substitute, a ram. And so here now in 2 Samuel 24, this was the exact place where the arm of the angel of the Lord was outstretched to destroy Jerusalem. And then God himself said, enough. And then God commanded David to offer a sacrifice as a substitute And then a bit later, it was the exact same place where Solomon built a temple to the Lord, where the priests, day after day, would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people as a substitute for their sin. And so we have this thread throughout the whole Old Testament that reminds us that God wants to relate to us, and yet yet he wants to be friends, and yet there's this problem What gets in the way is our sin. You see, David's sin, like our sin, deserves to be punished. He says, verse 10, What can take away the guilt of your servant, I beg you? And there's only two ways that our sin can be paid for or taken away. Either we pay or a substitute pays. Either we die or a sacrifice is offered in our place. But by the time we get to the New Testament, we learn in Hebrews 10 verse 4 that the blood of bulls and goats, it is impossible for them to take away sins. You see, our substitutionary sacrifice had to be a human being. He had to be like us, tempted in every way and yet without sin. And that's exactly who came. You see, our substitute was our representative head and his name is Jesus And a thousand years later, a short distance away from the threshing floor of Aruna, there was a lonely hill called Calvary, and it was there that they crucified Jesus. It was there that Jesus paid the price that all our sins deserve. And have a look with me again at verse 17. Just as as David prayed, let your hand fall on me. 
So the full fury of God's wrath at our sin fell on Jesus, the true son of David. Just as David saw himself as a shepherd of his people, so Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Look at verse 24. Just as David refused to offer a sacrifice that cost him nothing, so the sacrifice of Jesus cost him everything. Verse 25. Just as David's sacrifice stopped the plague and saved his people for a time, so Jesus' sacrifice stopped the plague of sin and death and saved his people forever. So as we close, friends, I hope you now see that the cross of Christ is not an afterthought. It's not God's plan B. It's the culmination and the centerpiece of God's plan of salvation that he had thought out and executed all the way from Genesis through to Revelation. And so therefore, there is not one detail of his plan of salvation that's been left to chance. Do you believe that? Do you trust him with the big details of your life that his plan of salvation um, works all together for your salvation? If you can trust him with the big details of your life and your salvation, friends, you can trust him with the small details of how he will get you there in the meantime. So friends, do continue to trust in Jesus even if your life Seems very turbulent right now. But if you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus, I urge you this morning, please put your trust in him today. Just as Sergio Martinez made one wrong move and it had incredibly bad consequences. So you have a choice this morning to make one right move, to trust in Jesus, and it will have massive consequences for all eternity. And if you're not sure how to put your trust in Jesus, honestly, it's as simple as A, B, C. A stands for admit. Admit that you're a sinner. You're a sinner like me, like David, like everyone who's ever lived since Adam apart from Jesus. Be honest with yourself. B is believe. Believe that Jesus died for you as your sacrificial substitute to pay the price your sins deserve and then rose again to give you life. And then C, commit. Commit your life to follow him as your king and representative head. So that's it. Admit, believe, commit. Trust him and you'll be forgiven. Trust him and you'll be transformed. Trust him and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that though we are sinners, Christ died and rose again to give us life. So, Father, help us to follow him with our whole hearts and so live in ways that please you as we wait with eager expectation and full assurance that when Jesus returns or calls us home, we'll be with you and him in the unity of the Holy Spirit, in security, in strength and in joy forever and ever. Amen.